Turn with me this morning to John chapter 18. We continue our study in the book of John. You'll notice there's not very many pages left in John, but it will take us a little while to, to get through these last few chapters. Today we're going to look at <clears throat> Peter and his denial of Jesus and how we are very much like him indeed uh, in, this, in this way. So before we look at this passage, let's go to the Lord ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would help us, that you would guide us. I think many times we read this passage with hearts that don't believe that we are just like Peter. And so help us to be convicted of our sin. Um, Help us to be convicted of our pride, anything that would put us up above anyone else as far as our merit before you. And so, Lord, help us, teach us from your word, guide us to the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, the first thing that I thought about was a a controversy that happened in the early church, and it was in the 4th century. Christians in the Roman Empire were growing rapidly. They began to have a great influence among all the people. Christianity was generally a good thing for all the communities and where it was, but again, they were beginning to have lots of influence in local government and, and establishment and economy. And so in an effort to squash this, the emperor at the time was named Diocletian, and he issued a series of edicts demanding essentially that Christians worship the Roman gods and that they trade in their own scriptures for fealty to Rome and to him, the Caesar, and to all the Roman pantheon. And if they didn't, then they would be sacrificed. Until this time, Christians were persecuted locally, and we get that some in the scriptures, but never anything like this. There were, there were times that scriptures or the Christians were persecuted throughout history, and you have these pockets of that. But it was during this time that was known as the Great Persecution, because now persecution would become law, that it was legal to do that. And Christians by the hundreds and thousands would die at the hands of the Roman government over the next eight to ten years or so. And many Christians, rather than face death in this way, allowed their copies of the Scriptures to be, to be burned, to be handed over, which was kind of a, which stood for basically a repudiation of their belief. Here you can have my copy of the Scriptures, and the emperor was um, satiated in his desire to kill them, and they basically went on their own way. Well, Time passes, a few years, and it's no longer dangerous to be a Christian, particularly after this uh, edict called the Edict of Milan. You may may have heard of it. Changes under Emperor Constantine. Many of these who had once turned in their scriptures and who had once said, no, uh, renounced the Christian faith, they did this in order to save their life, but now they wanted to come back to the faith. They wanted to be a part of the church again. They wanted to be restored to fellowship. And, of course, there were many who wouldn't have it. And this giant controversy began in the church called the Donatist Movement. Pretty fascinating. You should read it sometime. We should know our history. And essentially, they believed that 
that these who handed their scriptures over should no longer be allowed to be in the church. And that ministers that did that, there were ministers that did that too, ministers aren't usually any better than anyone else, they would no longer be allowed to administer the sacraments. And they started deciding on whose baptism was better, uh, those of the recanters or those of the true Christians. Sounds like a real mess, doesn't it? It was, and it haunted the church for a long time, and I would say to a certain degree, this kind of issue still haunts the church, not going back to Diocletian, obviously, but different pockets for different reasons today. And I would say that it's largely because of the way that we look at passages like the one that we have today. Today's passage deals with the betrayal of Peter and his three denials of Christ, which, remember, Jesus said would happen. And I think a lot of times we look at this passage and we think something like this. Well, I wouldn't have denied him. I would have stood there right there with him. And I've even heard it preached many, many times, sadly. Peter denied Jesus. Now what are you going to do? It really gives us a big chest when someone asks us if we're a Christian to say yes, because we didn't deny him. And quickly this passage can become about us and how bad Peter is and how we shouldn't be like him. And if we aren't careful, we'll miss the Savior altogether. And so today we'll consider our own proclivity to deny our Savior under much easier circumstances than Peter did here. And then we'll look at the Savior who loves us anyway. And so with that, let's stand together as we read from God's Word, John chapter 18, starting at verse 15 and going through verse 27. John 18, 15 through 27. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door, at the door. So the other disciple who had known the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer a high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself, and they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of, of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? 
Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so remember where we're at. Jesus has just been arrested. He's been led away by this army to this to the house of this high priest. And John, who uh, who calls himself another disciple here, I, again, think this is John. John normally refers to himself ambiguously. And Peter follows suit, though they had initially kind of fled the scene. When Paul refers to this night in the words that we read every Sunday for communion, when Paul refers to it, he refers to it as the night when he was betrayed, when Jesus was betrayed. We talk about this idea of betrayal and how dehumanizing it is. We've done that. Paul decided that rather than categorize this night as or by the arrest or by this uh, crazy trial that's about to happen or everything else that Jesus was going through, he referred to it as the night when he was betrayed. And make no mistake, it's easy for us to out Judas, I think, as the solitary betrayer. Again, because we like to put ourselves above people and... and Judas is easy to put ourselves above because Judas is obviously like a bad person. But Jesus was betrayed by two of his disciples that night. One being the snake of the bunch, Judas, and the other being his star pupil, Peter. And remember Peter, he was the one that confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, call, and Jesus, what did Jesus say? He says, you are blessed, and it is upon your confession that I'm going to build my church. And remember Peter, the one who got out of the boat when no one else would, right? Come to me, he said as Jesus was walking on the water, and Peter got out of the boat, even though he fell. And he was the one that spoke to Jesus at the transfiguration and, and offered to build a tent for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, even though it was kind of a silly thing to say. Peter was the one who stepped out on faith and said, I'm going to build a tent for all of you. And remember... He was the one that said he would go anywhere with Jesus. He said he would even die with him. So say what you want about Peter, but he had this certain kind of audacity that is attractive and something that many of us would like to have, I think. And he betrayed Jesus. The man who loved him, the man that he loved more than anything, he betrayed three times. But he was there. At this trial, he was right there, and he knew what Jesus said. He knew that Jesus said he would deny him three times, but he followed him anyway. And just a quick word about these court proceedings that we have here in verses 19 through 24. I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about the denial of Peter and what that has to do with our lives, but I want to talk about this trial, and we can put trial in quotes because it's kind of a a kangaroo court of sorts. Under Jewish law, an accused was allowed to gather witnesses for themselves and testify so that the witnesses could testify on their behalf. Now, note that when this trial is taking place is the middle of the night. Don't, don't think for a moment that that wasn't on purpose because who's going to go and gather witnesses in the middle of the night? And all of Jesus' friends had just got through fleeing. They fled. And he's attempting now to invoke this right for himself. Right? He's saying, 
I have spoken openly to the world. It wasn't like he was speaking in hidden corners. He would go to the festivals and speak openly to the Jewish leadership and call them out among everybody. They didn't like that. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, these crowded areas where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I've said to them, and they know what I've said. Because they were questioning him about his teachings, about his doctrine. They were, they were wanting to know. And Jesus said, everything that I've ever taught is way out in the open. And hundreds of people have heard me. Ask them what I've said. And what did Jesus get for his statement? That should be normal under Jewish law, right? To, to invoke a witness, to say, ask these people what I've said. Have I said anything wrong? What did he get? He got a backhand from the temple hireling. And the temple, this little officer says, is that how you answer a high priest? Now consider this for a moment. This temple officer telling the creator of the universe to show some respect for his authority. Pretty incredible. To get hit in the face by this man that that he created and for this man to turn and tell Jesus, hey, respect your authority. It's laughable. We laugh about it, but it should make us pause also and consider how our own sin does the same thing. Jesus simply asks him to tell him what he's done wrong. If I've done something wrong, then tell me what it is. And then what happens then? He gets he gets sent away. They send him away. They don't want to hear him. They don't want to hear what he has to say. This is the very definition of what's called a kangaroo trial. The verdict was decided before the accused even stepped in the courtroom, and now Jesus was kind of moved next in line to go see Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect for Judah. Annas, this is Caiaphas' father-in-law, wanted Jesus dead, so it was just better not to talk talk to him, right? Because if you talk to him, what's going to be revealed? The truth. And Annas wanted no part of the truth. So they bound Jesus. You know, because he was so dangerous, this Jewish rabbi. They bound him, and they led him away. And this is one of the things that continues to amaze me as I read this story, and it should for all of us, this incredible love that Jesus had for his people to undergo this type of humiliation. The one who named the stars, who gave them all a name, we don't even know where all the stars are, but yet he's named them all, is now bound with some ropes and chains and led away like a criminal through the streets and tried in some make-believe justice system. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not forget the price paid for our sin so that we might have eternal life. And so let's now turn to Peter's denial and our own. And again, John is likely the disciple that is with Peter. John normally doesn't name himself in this book, and so many people think that it's him. I don't think it's that important who it is. But John gets Peter in the front gate through whatever connections he has, and there's this little girl at the gate, this servant girl. And apparently, John somehow slips by, or she just knows that John is one of the disciples of his, and and John goes ahead and admits that. Something happens there. But Peter doesn't. And so she apparently had seen Peter with Jesus at some point, or with John, and knew they were together. And so she questioned him. 
You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? Now, you get this scene. You have this little girl who's working at the gate. That's her job. She's a servant girl. And you have this strong, grown fisherman. And a very simple question is asked to him. And he lies to her because he's afraid. I am not one of his disciples. And then what does he do? He goes and takes his place around the fire. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. Notice, the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. Who came? Who went to arrest Jesus? The temple servants and the officers. So there is Peter warming himself around a fire with Jesus' arresters. And he just denied that he knew Jesus. As if nothing took place, right? He's just there warming himself, trying to kind of be nonchalant. And then we have this interlude of the, of the court proceedings, which we just talked about. And then we go right back to Peter by the fire again. So they're standing around the fire. Someone asks him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Again, we get this. And he says, no. Next, there's someone who actually saw him at the garden. This is a relative of the man who had almost had to live the rest of his life with one ear. And he asked Peter, were you there? Remember you cut my cousin's ear off? Nope, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. Now, John's narrative here is a bit more subdued than what we get in some of the rest of the Gospels. And so turn with me to Mark 14 quickly. And I want to read a little more, or that has a little more dialogue into it. And again, just a quick note as we do this, we're not going to get a better account in Mark. We're getting a different account in Mark. When four people tell a story about something, they're bound to tell a different story. Not different factual events, but have a different detailed account of that. John's details of what Peter said were a little more subdued. Mark gives us a a fuller, more detailed account of what's going on. So look at Mark 14, starting at verse 66, there at the end of the chapter. And I want you to notice what Peter, how Peter kind of goes through in this passage, what's actually happening to Peter as we, get, we go through this passage. And Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't even understand what's coming out of your mouth. Much less was I with Jesus. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Remember, Jesus said the rooster wouldn't crow twice. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, bystanders again said to Peter, and so you can kind of get this, there's this commotion going on with Peter standing there trying to blend in with the people who arrested Jesus. Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
and he broke down and wept. And so look at this progression. First he shrugs off this little girl, basically saying that he didn't understand what she was asking, which is silly. Then he denies this other group. The girl kind of says something. The little girl says, no, he was with them. And he says, no, not me. Goes and warms himself by the fire. These bystanders begin questioning him. And what does he do? He invokes a curse upon himself, basically testifying an oath. This is a big deal in, in Jewish law. He's testifying an oath to this. And he begins to swear using this strong language. I don't even know this man, he says about Jesus. I remember as a kid going to church camp and hearing that Peter denied Christ and how we should live boldly instead, unlike Peter. And I wanted to. I wanted to do that. I wasn't even a believer at the time, but I thought it was an attractive thing. I wanted to do that. I wanted to, to fit in as a believer, right? And then it came time, this time of year, beginning of the year, there's, a, there's an event at the school called See You at the Pole, and you guys are familiar with that, where the Christian kids gather around a flagpole. Um, and this was just a few years old at the time this event was. And I remember seeing those kids, I got out of the car and seeing those kids praying, and I wanted to be bold, but I just kept walking and walked inside, and that was the extent of my trying to be bold for a faith I didn't even believe in. I wanted to identify them with them, but I had this tremendous amount of guilt that was associated with not walking over to be with them. I denied him in, in, in this benign situation, like a high school flagpole gathering. So that's a high school thing to do, right? To worry about what people think about you and to pretend that you aren't a Christian for just a few minutes to fit in with the right people, to, to wear like 10,000 masks in the course of an eight-hour day. And that's kind of a high school thing to do. This story isn't about that, though, right? This is about life and death that Peter's talking about here. If Peter's to out himself, maybe they're going to kill him, too. So my situation was much different as is the ones that we can identify with. Yet Peter, nonetheless, felt this guilt press against him very quickly. And Matthew tells us in his account that he went and wept bitterly for this guilt. You know, we, we want to make this about standing up for Jesus in our classroom or our workplace or wherever, because those things are relatively easy things, right? We aren't being killed. We aren't being persecuted. In fact, our country has laws protecting our rights to answer, yes, I am a Christian. I can stand up with a shirt or a sign on the street corner and hold that up, and no one can lay a finger on me. It is absolutely legal for me to say I am with Christ. And we want to make it about those things because we feel like if we make it about real, if we, if we were to ever make it about real betrayal, then we would all be guilty. If we make this story about the time that we knew what was right, and yet we did the wrong thing anyway, then we no longer look like super-Christians, do we? Or the time that we did nothing, when we should have done the right thing. We all know those times. All those sins, every single one of them, is a betrayer, a betrayal 
of our Creator. We are no different than our brother Peter, though his sin seems so much more offensive to us. And so what do we do in light of that? What do we do? Well, we turn to Jesus because Jesus cannot deny his child. And I'll tell you one thing we don't do again. And let me turn, turn with me to Romans 1. And again, I think this is a very American way to think about these passages because we live in such freedom. We're not in countries that we're going to be killed and shot at and kidnapped and all this different stuff for believing in our faith. So we like to uphold this fact, like verse 16 of Romans 1. Look at that with me. Verse 16 of Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we stop there. We wear that on our t-shirt. I am not ashamed of the gospel, exclamation point, even though it's not the end of the sentence. Right? This shouldn't be our battle cry. Because the gospel, because as long as the gospel message is resting upon my lack of shame, then it won't last for any amount. If the power of the gospel is the fact that I'm not ashamed in it, then it, it's not going to last any time at all. But why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Look at the rest of verse 16. For it, the gospel, not my declaration, not my confession, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Not my lack of guilt, but the gospel itself is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. My ability to deny him or not has no bearing upon my salvation or my ability to keep my salvation. You know, think back to this, the Donatism controversy that I talked about. What was it snuffed out by in history? This very truth. This is what snuffed it out. Our ability to confess Christ in the face of trial isn't the merit by which we should judge our salvation. What is the merit by which we should judge our salvation? The righteousness of Christ. What did we confess together as a church today? Our faithfulness in Him, to Him, isn't what my salvation is based off of, but it's His faithfulness to me that I can rest my hope on. The Belgic Confession that we read today came from a time when the Catholic Church in the Netherlands was persecuting the church. They were killing Christians. This was the 16th century. And a man who ended up dying a martyr penned this as a reminder, this is our confession. And notice in what we read today, it had nothing to do with make sure that you profess Jesus before you die. No, it had to do with the fact that Jesus is our salvation. His righteousness is our salvation. From the foundation of the world, he has set aside a people for himself. And it's those people that he came to save. And if you read your Old Testament, you read your New Testament, what do those people do all the time? They walked with him faithfully, and he saved them because of their faithfulness. No, I wish that was the story, but it's not the story. They continued to turn away from him every single chance they got. You can't even get from one chapter to the next without them doing it again. 
Peter didn't break any new ground here in denying Jesus three times. This isn't the first time that our Lord has been denied. It won't be the last time that he's been denied. He did what people he did what the people of God have been doing for years. Resting upon their own merit, and then when it gets tough, denying it. For Peter, this was foundational though. He went away and he wept bitterly. This is foundational for him because it's going to help to teach him the richness of the gospel message that he can later teach to the church. We have evidence of that. Turn to First Peter with me, chapter 3. First Peter, chapter 3. First Peter is written to a persecuted church. If you look there at the beginning, it's a, the greeting is to the elect exiles of the dispersion, the church that had been scattered. First Peter chapter three, starting at verse thirteen, he gives them instructions on how they should defend their faith, on how they should answer people when they ask questions and when they come to them with, a, "Do you believe in Jesus?" Now who is here, or who is there to harm you, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Sounds like Peter's learned quite a bit. Having a good conscience, conscience so that you, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For, if, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Again, this is Peter's message to those who were facing persecution, just like he was there in the, in the temple courtyard. They should be prepared to give a defense. But Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The one who called a betrayer, who or the one who was called a betrayer of the Son of God, is now in heaven as a child of God. Because his salvation didn't rest on his perfect sinless confession of his Savior. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, doesn't rely on that either, thankfully. Nor does our standing in the church or our standing among other Christians, any of that. And so in conclusion, I think we're quick to jump on something like this because it seems so easy to do, right? Don't deny Jesus. Sure, I got that. However, we would have been there, we would have been that temple officer that backhanded Jesus for what he said and questioned his authority, just like that officer did. 
We would have been afraid of that little girl at the gate as well, and the folks around the fire too. We would have been right there with Peter. We would have sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We do it for a lot less every day. It's called sin. Yet even while we were his enemies, he died for us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us remember to be salt and light in the earth. And for those times when we aren't, let us lean on the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are too often just like Peter. Any time that we do something that is against your law, against your will, any time we don't do the things that we should do, we are betraying the one that we love, the one who loved us from the foundations of the earth. And so, Lord, help us to walk closer with you. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Guide us in that truth, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.